0: You know, because I've had some things that have really taken off, everybody thinks that's the objective. And, and it isn't really. The objective is just for me to make sense of the world.
1: Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information. I'm the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Tim O'Reilly, definitely one of the most influential people in the development of the internet as we know it. He is the founder and CEO of technology publishing giant O'Reilly Media and has played a seminal role in movements including open source software, Web 2.0, Maker Culture and Government 2.0 and is author of the excellent book WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. You can find his blog at O'Reilly.com slash Tim and you can join his 1.7 million other Twitter followers at at Tim O'Reilly. In this episode, Tim shares fabulous insights on noticing things other people don't notice, the value of soft focus, how we help to frame the open source and Web 2.0 movements, patience in building narratives, and far more. Keep listening to hear how Tim keeps ahead of change in the extraordinarily fast moving world of the web. Tim, great delight to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So you have lived a life immersed in information and uh, helped others in many ways, and uh, I suppose to point them to and digest that information. So how how do you think about that idea? How do you think of what's, what, how do you approach unlimited information and being able to make that into something valuable?
0: Well, to understand how I think about it, it, it helps to say that I don't have an approach where I really try to keep track of information or gather information. I mean, certainly some some ways I do, but my working principle was expressed very well by uh, Tevye in uh, Fiddler on the Roof when he said, "Good news will stay, and bad news will refuse to leave." And so, in a certain way, my approach is is that I just. know, things come by and if they keep coming by, they're probably important. Uh, You know, and if they don't, then maybe they weren't. But there's a bigger piece of it. And this is really maybe explainable by reference to uh, something like Google Maps, you know, where people follow the map and they stop noticing where they turn versus, you know, people who in the old days had to learn and observe the world around them you know to the level where um, you think about uh, you know the South Sea Islanders who could navigate by watching the ocean currents, you know or the stars they they were their own g p s yes, and they were continually taking in information and noticing how it was different from what they expected or the same as they expected. And I work a lot like that. I have a mental model that I try to build of the world. And that model is inductive. You know, like I I basically I'm taking things in and I go, oh, this is different. This doesn't fit. And a lot of the work that I've done over the years has simply been trying to construct a map by looking around. And you pay attention to things and the things that start you know, with, with a soft focus. This is an idea, I think, from, you know, from hunting and things like that. You know, you, you watch with a soft focus. I, now, of course, I'm not a hunter, but I, uh, uh, I, I once uh, read a book called The Tracker and I took an, a, a workshop with one of the founders of this sort of tracking movement. And you, you, you know, you're just receptive and you're open. And then the things that, uh, certain things just sort of pop out at you as anomalies. And that's yes. what's interesting.
1: So this i mean, this, this is very close to, to my thesis around how, well, almost that is the same as my thesis around how it is that we build these models of the world. So can you, when you have the building this mental model, is this, I think when people talk about mental models, they often talk about discrete heuristics in a sense. Whereas a mental model is really, I think, more uh, holistic. It is a mental model of the entire world or the entire world of business and how that works. So, how do you frame this mental model that you have built in our building?
0: Well, first of all, I do have a set of frames for it. And, and one, and I wrote a little bit about this in a recent piece, um, and also wrote about it in my book, WTF. Uh, I call it Thinking in Vectors. You know this idea that there are forces that are moving things along and they're moving uh, you know a vector has both a direction and a, and a quantity and so what you're looking for in a certain way is acceleration in a particular direction you're looking for how those directions collide with uh, you know with other vectors and what the resulting outcomes might be you know so in this piece welcome to the 21st century, you know, I, I wrote about, you know, one of the big impacts of the pandemic might well be that we never go back to the office. And sure enough, that's turning out to be a, a, a possible future. Uh, that's the other thing. I, I have a, a mental model that comes from scenario planning about imagining very different futures. And, and then at, when they start to come true, you go, oh, okay, that one was more right than the other one. And you you start to solidify, and again, it's very Bayesian. You know, it's it's simply you have a set. You, I think part of it would be to say it's a Bayesian system in which you have multiple overlapping sets of priors that you're willing to accept, loosely, and uh, and then, and then they collapse differentially. You know, and, and and I think that's the thing. I don't think people think enough about in uh, you know Bayesian probability systems. It's not just one set of priors; it's it's a set of overlapping sets of priors that that could collapse in different directions
1: and ones where you're of course continually attuned to the things which don't fit and could help you modify those frameworks.
0: Yeah. I do think there's a big part of it is, is, is building your own map is a big part of it. Uh, you know, and and there's a creativity to that. The, uh, you know, so much of the model of creativity in our culture is it's, it's, it's making stuff up. And I think creativity is noticing things (laughs) that other people don't notice. And, uh, you know because it's it's ultimately a kind of uh, of scientific process and, and, and even you know like just think about something that we think of as traditionally creative like music uh, you know somebody is is they're making something up because they saw a possibility that wasn't being that wasn't there before you know yes. they didn't just make it up for the hell of it you know, they made it up because they 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 were they were they were seeing what the new possibilities were in in maybe it's in an instrument, maybe it's in a cultural milieu, maybe but but they're they're basically we shape reality by what we notice and choose to pay attention to. And I've always been a huge fan of the poetry of, of Wallace Stevens because that's what he's all about, you know. Uh there's this underlying reality, and yet we shape it. And he he described, uh, you know, reality as uh, as the quest for supreme fiction, you know, something that we could all agree on, you know, <laughs> but the, the, the contention between people is provisions of the future. And you certainly see that in the political realm, but you also see it in, you know, say, you know, paradigm shifts in technology or physics, you know, somebody basically yes. convinces other people that this is the right way to think about the world.
1: Yes, yes, it's yeah, and I th- I think that way of we make the world by how we perceive it.
0: That's right, and, and and even you know we have this a bit of an illusion in the West that somehow our quest is towards the one true uh, reality, you know. And I kind of go, yeah, but you know, tell that to my dog, you know. Yeah, you know, we're we're out there looking at things, and it's like. What are you people looking at? There's a really good smell here. You're not paying any attention whatsoever. (laughs) You know, and I think, uh, you know, that's one of the things, of course, in science fiction, you know, it's like, how do we know that there aren't completely different and equally valid and maybe even more productive ways of looking at the world?
1: Absolutely. So in in W2F, you you mentioned compiling the pieces of the puzzle before you put the map together so yeah. how how do you find those pieces of the puzzle or identify them or recognize that they are pieces of the puzzle
0: yeah uh well to, to, let, me, let me back up and give you a little bit of color on that analogy you know the, the the point is that like if you imagine doing a puzzle and all the pieces aren't there you can't actually finish it and very often when you're dealing with something new the pieces literally aren't there and uh, I thought of that very vividly around you know my work with open source software because I was thinking a lot about the fact I, I the first thing you think back okay what did I notice you know that that other people weren't noticing I noticed that the free software foundation didn't talk about a lot of the software that you know I was selling really popular books about that were also free software they talked about yes. linux they talked about you know the GNU utilities and I go they, they they don't really talk about Perl. They don't talk at all about, you know, DNS and Bind, you know, and all these t- tools out of the Berkeley Software Distribution because they had a map that was all about the license. And it was yes. particularly our license. And so I'm going, wait a minute. They don't include the World Wide Web, which was put into the public domain. Something is wrong with this picture. They don't include, you know, send mail. They don't call the DNS. They don't include, you know, all the, you know, TCP, IP, you know, um, you know, protocol suite and, and the implementations of that. And so I go, something is clearly wrong with this picture. And so I thought, well, I'm going to bring all these people together to talk about what's wrong with the picture. And at that meeting, you know, Eric Raymond says, oh, you know, Christine uh, Peterson came up with a new term, you know, three weeks ago. You know, <laughs> which was open source. And we debated it, and you know like so I was kind of like I d- identified a gap uh, and uh, uh I didn't know you know that there would be a new name for it that was going to show up, but it showed up just on time and if I had done my meeting, and I kept going why am I and there's an intuitive part to this, it was a part of me like, why am I delaying having this meeting I, I am I just being a slacker, and then you know you look at how it worked out, it was the timing was perfect. Yes. Another one that was a little bit like that was when I started talking about, you know, as I started thinking about this, you know, sort of the licensing wasn't the key to open source. It was really collaborative software development. It was the way the internet was enabling new kinds of 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 collaboration, including software collaboration and distributed computing and things like, you know, SETI at home with distributed computation and Napster with file sharing. They all started talking to me you know, about there's a new paradigm emerging. Um, And I kept following, tugging on that thread and trying to, you know, integrate into some new map that would make sense to me. And I eventually came up with this notion that we're building, uh, you know, an internet operating system where we're going to be, you know, effectively, and it's going to be based on data. And as a result of that, you know, I you know launched the Web 2.0 events, but then I launched one called Where 2.0, and I was like, you know, because guess what? Location is going to be one of the big subsystems of this internet operating system. And it was great because a month before, you know, and we'd been, we'd been promoting the event, and a month before, uh, you know, we went went live, uh, you know, Google approached me and said, hey, we're doing this new thing. Any chance that we could, you know, introduce it at your conference? That was Google Maps, you know? And, and uh, so, you know, I, I kind of saw that there was a, a, a you know, a logic to this thing. I didn't know anything. I wasn't didn't have some inner intelligence on what Google was doing. I wasn't really paying attention to the news. They just sort of showed up because I'd actually built. So this is this is what I mean by the pieces of the puzzle suddenly showing up and you go, "Oh, there is the piece that was missing." And you yes. drop it in place and everything starts to make sense.
1: And that's so this this is one of the, the word framework I think is really mm-hmm relevant because that's exactly as, for example, the frame of a painting, what goes in and what goes out. And so the framework is the frame where you can see what are the pieces which fit within that frame. And so in that case, uh, I don't know whether it's you personally or came up with the term you know, Web 2.0. No, I I didn't actually. uh, Yeah. But, but there was then there is this name. There is this something where you can have a label or something where you can then communicate about what that frame frame is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And um, I, I I think that's 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 absolutely right. The name often uh, you know it doesn't match. I would you know like Web Two had a lot of baggage. You know, like here I'm talking about the Internet operating system, and it was just too geeky. You know. And then uh, um, Dale Daugherty came up with the name Web 2.0 in a brainstorm meeting with uh, Craig Klein. Uh, They were trying to come up with a way that our two companies could do an event together. And we were thinking, what could we learn from them? Somebody else who was doing events. And Dale was like, well, it was really around the second coming of the dot com bust after the world, you know, after the. You know, the second coming of the World Wide Web after the dot com bust was what Web Two O stood for, and Dale had kind of developed a sin, a, a, you know, a series of things that it was about, and then I just really fleshed it out with a bunch of the ideas that I'd previously been calling the Internet Operating System, and uh, and the name took off. And uh, but there was also a piece. There was an aspirational piece that I think was very f- interesting about that because we Dale and. Craig came up with that in 2003. I had been doing this internet operating system stuff since 2001, you know, as I had this P2P conference and then that emerged into this thing we called e the Emerging Technologies Conference, which is really exploring this idea of, of how the network was changing uh, the way we would all interact. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't, I guess it it, it wasn't, that we ha- had thought everything through, but we had a model uh, into which the, you know, the future, the future shows up, and it starts to make more sense. So again, another analogy I use is a little bit like a hologram. You know, you have the big picture there, but it's fuzzy. And the more data points come in, the c- the clearer it gets.
1: So you, you may have already answered this, but it, there's this if you've got the pieces of the puzzle, and you start to see those map out, and then you can see the framework, is there? What is the art then of putting the pieces of the puzzle together to form something, which is a whole?
0: I think the one piece of the art is patience. Uh, Lao Tzu, the author of the Tao Te Ching, uh, says, um, you know, he's talking about the qualities of the wise man. And You know, he has a bunch of them, you know, alert as a winter fairer on an icy stream. You know, I I forget what they all are. But then the last one is, but also this, roiled as a torrent. Why roiled as a torrent? Because sometimes there's nothing to do but wait until the stream clears. (laughs) And uh, I I think that 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 waiting quality, I think, has been a big part of what I've done where I haven't rushed to try to make a story where there isn't one, you know, like the the process, the progress for me from, you know, from open source to web 2.0 was a seven or eight year process. And if you look at the history of the talks I was giving, I was sort of, you know, feeling my way towards this new paradigm. And then you know like how did i get from you know the, the there to the gov20 stuff i started thinking about you know the lessons for uh government from technology platforms and you know i, I it was a set of conversations with people and somebody would show up with a piece of the puzzle and I'd go yes that sounds that's a you know still remember the conversation where i got off on the government as a platform i i i uh, But then continuing down that path that led me to, you know, all the work that I'm doing right now about marketplaces and antitrust, you know, so uh, I'm, you know, which kind of through this idea of algorithmic regulation, which is something else that I came up with. And again, not all of these things catch. Yes. But the point isn't, you know, because I've had some things that have really taken off, everybody thinks that's the objective. And and it isn't really. The objective is just for me to make sense of the world.
1: Absolutely. It's always me. That's the same in in my own uh, own way. I create frameworks for myself, and I happen to share them, and sometimes people happen to like them. But that's the the secondary secondary aspect. Yeah. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com course to find out more. Now back to the show. Coming back a step... Is there some kind of framing purpose that helps you find these pieces of the, the, these puzzles, these maps which unfold? Have you framed some way in which you, there is an intent around what, what it is within your purview of uh, what you are considering?
0: Well, I, I guess there, there are definitely some big picture things and they're, they're more values than anything else uh and, and it has to do with and again i've just recently got some interesting new language for this uh from evolutionary biology uh david sloan wilson uh has been doing a, a lot of work on what he calls multi-level selection uh which he's he sums up i guess he was he and edward edward o wilson who was one of his teachers they're not related even though they both have the same last name wilson which is selfish individuals can outcompete. Altruistic individuals, but altruistic groups outcompete selfish groups, mm-hmm. and you know there's a lot of of, of fabulous research on this on, on this sort of alternating levels of what he calls multi-level selection. You know where where there's certain behaviors that are are at the individual level and others that are at the group level, and 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 that sort of that notion of the the alternation of of uh, individual and group actually goes all the way back to some early learning I did in the, in the seventies, uh, in a context that I don't want to unpack here, but that was very fertile ground for me, but I've always thought about cooperation and what encourages cooperation. You know, we have a metaphor in our society that says, you know, it, it's, it's about winning, you know, uh, that, that this, uh, you know, capitalism is all about competition and uh, you know winner takes all and I, I guess I have a set of, of values that you know i in some ways I guess I'm always trying to explore and justify why that isn't true, which is why I was attracted say to open source software it's like you know you say it's all about competition, but guess what you know look over here you know Microsoft was so competitive they they killed all all the innovation. And, and all these people went off and they just started farting around with the internet and open source because, hey, they could, they could cooperate. There was this new model. I mean, but even looking back, you know, again, the shaping, I guess, in some ways, one of the big shaping maps of my technology career was watching the alternation it was sort of IBM was dominant. You know, I came in actually in the tail end of the mini computer era, you know, not in the PC era. And I watched the PC blow up because there's this democratization of access then I watch Microsoft win and replay the, the tragedy, you know, um, and, and then explosion of, of innovation and decentralization uh, gives us the Internet open source. And then you watch Google and Amazon and the like replay the centralization and you know bit by bit abuse of power model. And I kind of go, well, I've seen it now three times. I go, so value is you know gonna go somewhere else because you know, and, and I guess that, you know one of the basic you know. So I have this big picture idea that if you take too much of the value, the system breaks down and 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 people find new niches you know and, and that's actually a fundamentally ecological concept so again i guess i i look at there's a lot of analogies that kind of you know kind of you know, are not exact but help shape your thinking and and your map
1: so the the more analogies you have access to the the mm-hmm. more you're able to perceive things which can be you know, useful yeah. to, for framing things.
0: Right. Oh, this is like that. Oh, that means that this is probably interesting. And, uh, you know, so, you know, and it can lead you astray. You know, like, for example, I've been, because of my centralization versus decentralization narrative, I was, you know, I, I've, pro- I've probably been more skeptical of cryptocurrencies than I sh- should be because everybody was like, oh, this is all about decentralization. And I go, yeah, it, it re-centralized like faster than any technology in history, you know, and, and it fit exactly the pattern, you know, where, uh, you know, of my, you know, here's IBM that's got their centralized power of the computer industry by control over hardware. They don't realize that this changes when they have commodity hardware. They release the specs for the IBM PC. They don't think it really matters. Uh, software is just a you know something that goes with the hardware. But Microsoft basically makes a new explosion of uh, a new power center that's centered on software. Uh, uh, they're all about control of software APIs. They become dominant. They don't realize this new thing where software becomes commoditized by open source and the internet, and uh, then it's all about uh, uh, about data. You know, Now we're in this paradigm shift around uh, AI. We don't quite know what that means. I see some things that I think are really interesting where the models that are being released often by the big companies, I think are gonna undermine them in the same way that the PC undermined IBM uh, and the internet uh, undermined. I'm I'm so I'm 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 aware of that. And everybody was saying, no, the next thing is crypto. And maybe, maybe, but you know, what I saw was centralization. And once again, the centralization is not in the in the original model. The centralization came through energy, you know, not through. Yeah. yeah. And and so that's sort of interesting because of course that starts to intersect with the whole world, the whole world problem, that energy is is going to be one of the critical, you know, pathways that differentiates whether we survive or or not. And there's some arguments that, yeah, you know, maybe crypto will accelerate that because people will go, oh, well, there's a great way to make lots of money, but we need to have super cheap power in order to do it. Um, but we're not there yet, you know, but, it, it, you know, you kind of go, oh, there's something interesting there. There's this repeating pattern. Maybe, maybe crypto is the way forward, but Maybe it's because it, it it centralized so quickly that won't happen.
1: Well, part of well part of it yeah. is that the technologies are decentralized, but the economic manifestations of them are
0: yeah, centralized. and that's and, and that's uh, that's always the point. I mean, you know, the internet was also fundamentally decentralized, but the economic models became centralization, and this goes back to this you know multi level selection uh, you know played out in culture. Which is that we are seeing this dance between competition and cooperation.
1: Which which I think is something which can help frame those, yeah, you know, that synthesis yeah. or the models, whatever frameworks we we mm-hmm. come. So some of the you know some of the powers of uh thriving and overload are uh filtering and focus. And I get the sense that you know you at the beginning you alluded to es- essentially allowing the wash to to come over you and you uh, what what comes what you see you know the things which you see are the ones which are the things which are relevant
0: Yeah I think I think that's right
1: So but are there any uh particular tools approaches uh, routines
0: uh- first off I will say that there is a real downside To my approach, because I'm not very goal directed, you know. I I or my goal is to make interesting things happen for other people, and I I I I miss a lot. I have this one very funny uh, experience where there was a startup that was uh, I I heard about had been funded by a friend of mine. I went, holy cow, that's super interesting. You know, and I reached out to the guy who'd given them funding and I said, can you introduce me? And he introduced me to the founder and the guy's like, "Uh, Tim, it was your idea that we built. Uh, We came to see you and we had a bad idea and you didn't like it and you told us what we should be doing and we went and did it. And I go, well, how did I manage to not then have them come back and tell me, uh, are we doing your thing? Um, you know, and, and I would have invested in it and it would have been a good exit, but I just, you know, like, I, I just don't think that way a lot. Uh, I, I sometimes laugh about myself. I'm a little bit like, uh, this, um, uh, episode I saw when my kids were little of Sesame street in which the cookie monster is sort of won the some, at some game show. And he's now at the, the, the section where he gets to choose his prize. And behind door number one is, you know, a million dollars behind door number two is a chateau in France or something like that. And behind door number three is a cookie. <laughs> you know? And we all know what he chooses. And for me, the cookie is just interesting people doing interesting work that seems to make the world go better. And, uh, that's kind of why I, you know, I tend to surround myself with people who pick up on things that I find interesting and then pursue them methodically, because I don't.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, uh, coming back to when I was asking about purpose, I mean, in a way you've, you've framed it just now and the side effects of the, that purpose are wonderful. <laughs>
0: yeah i just love to have uh, like you know i you know, at my at, at my events i like to connect other people uh I, every, the things that i get so excited about hearing that oh you guys uh met and and cooked up something amazing and again we did put something you know like for example you know uh planet which uh you know does the the, the satellites it was sort of formed at, at uh, uh as a result of our science food camp and you know and you know, that led to me, we did actually invest in it through our venture fund, but it wasn't because of me. I was just like, hey, let me put these interesting people together, you know, <laughs> these guys from NASA were making shoebox satellites. That's super cool. Let's invite them to this event. Uh and and you know, there's a lot of things like that where that's my as as uh you know, John Maynard Keynes used to say, my jam. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. as you well understand is how the future is created. Yeah. So any final words of advice for anyone who is uh struggling with uh far too much information and trying to make sense of it.
0: Well, I I I think that and again maybe I'm I'm spoiled because of course I I've been you know quite successful and, and I'm not there like an early career person who's trying to make their mark in the world I but I, I think we 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 try too hard yes you know it's like um again lots of my mentor says let life ripen and then fall will is not the way at all we need to have an attitude of receptivity uh, you know for any of this stuff to work and that's not terribly compatible with you know, a certain kind of striving. Now, again, striving really works. I mean, there are people who are way more successful than I am who are hyper-competitive and they're trying to make some particular thing happen. And you know, so it, there's more than one way to do it, as Larry Wall, the creator of the Perl Programming Language, used to say. Uh, so I, I can't tell you that my way is the best way. I can tell you that it's been good for me. And I try to, you know, it it helps me align my work life and my personal life when I'm I'm kind of going, you know, again, you're trying to make something happen, but you're also trying to listen a lot. And it's finding the balance between the two.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And I guess the other thing that's been very shaping for me is this wonderful poem of uh, uh, of Rilke uh, called The Man Watching in which he says, uh, this is a, a, you know, my, my rough translation of somebody else's English translation from the German. But he's talking about uh, Jacob uh, in the Old Testament wrestling with the angel. Yeah. You know? And he says, uh, uh, sense, what we fight with is so small, and when we win, it makes us small. What we want is to be defeated by successively greater beings. And I think there's a certainly a, a a a point where everybody thinks that it's about success, and if you have the perspective that we're all ultimately defeated, but we we is uh, again Rilke's phrase we come away stronger from the fight. You're going to tackle hard things, and it's not about winning you know, Rilke says, winning does not tempt that man, you know, <laughs> and, uh, he, you know, the, or that woman, you know, it's just like, you are about engaging with the world in a way that's productive in the process, not in the necessarily in the outcome. Because ultimately, you know, we don't win, you know, <laughs> we, we we can just leave things a little better than we found them.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely relevant, you know, for everyone in, you know, these times, because there's no such thing as the win in a way it's, it's, as you say that.
0: Yeah. and, And that helps you select what to pay attention to, because you can start to say, oh, I, you know, my, if, if your fundamental goal is to make other people better off, uh, then, you know, you, you value things like cooperation. You value things like making connections that allow people to uh, do things that you wouldn't be able to do by yourself. You, you you realize that oh, you value telling a story that lets other people make sense out of, uh, 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 and see opportunities that you couldn't pursue. And and that's kind of why at O'Reilly, one of our slogans has been you know create more value than you capture. You know, we put together information yep. that helps other people to do things. And uh, that's the heart of our, you know, O'Reilly online learning platform today still, you know, it's just like, yeah, how do we teach people to follow w- what they want to do? And it's not directive, it's, it's uh, enabling.
1: Absolutely. Tim, been delighted delight and an honor to, uh, to have you and to, uh, for you to share your uh, insights. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I enjoy talking with you too. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.